So let's talk about fear. What, what do you fear? I mean, let's just think about what, what is it that you're afraid of? What comes to your mind? Perhaps on the surface, if you lived in the South, you'd be thinking hurricane. Up here, we think of a nor'easter in the winter. Perhaps you, you're afraid of snakes or heights. Perhaps it's failure. Perhaps it's what people think of you. Or perhaps it's getting into or getting that celebrated job or that name brand job or getting into that name brand college, university, making it on a team. I mean, how would you know what you fear? Well, it's pretty simple. What are you most afraid of? What do you think about the most? What do you, what do you plan on uh, conquering the most? Uh, what do you make your most plans about? On it goes. There was a recent poll in 2018 on what Americans fear. Uh, the question was basically to set up a, a fear paradigm where they, you know, least fear, most fear, and, and with those that were afraid or very afraid, the number one, and somewhat predictable, the number one fear in America is a corrupt or inadequate government. That, that kind of surprises me in an individual level, but if you think about it, I'm not so sure what drives fear? Is fear driven by reality or reality driven by what is social media or what is being marketed as reality? But that's what most Americans fear, they said. A corrupt or inadequate government. Second is the pollution, the climate, climate change. They fear those kinds of catastrophes that are related to our geo sort of place that we live. Third along the line was, of course, the fear of not having enough money, the economy. And then finally, it was the fear of being alone, the lack of companionship, the fear of someone dying, for instance. There are all sorts of ways that you could get into these fears, but, but if you stop and think about it, is fear a good thing? Would you say it's a good, wise, and smart thing to fear? Can it be smart, wise to fear that is? Well, I suspect you're thinking, well, if warranted, yes. I mean, what kind of fool walks into danger, right? I mean, if I see a snake on the ground, I'm not going to take the time to figure out if it has, you know, the markings of a poisonous snake. I'm just moving because I don't know enough about snakes. And so that's smart, right? So there can be a sense in which fear is smart, if warranted. But also you would probably want to think that, well, fear is smart if, if the intensity of our fear is moderated by the, the fear itself. In other words, is it fear fit a fearful situation? I mean, I obviously should be much more afraid of, say, dying and something that it, it threatens me in my life than I am of something that will maybe perhaps break my leg. You see what I mean? Fear is a good thing if it's productive. If I can do something about it. But if I can't do something about it, you'd probably think, well, it's not very productive, it's not very useful, it's probably pretty stupid to fear if it's out of my control. Now this is where we really start to get somewhere. We're thinking about fear. Typically underneath all of our felt fears is an unspoken fear of losing something. Most psychologists have studied this and that really comes down to something you're afraid of losing. Perhaps it's security. That is that which makes you feel safe in the world. Money, health, job, schools, etc., all can play into that sort of cardinal fear of security. Or maybe it's something that makes you feel a sense of worth, of, of significance. It gives you a sense of worthness and, and purposefulness and, and a kind of comfortable in your own skin because you believe in yourself sort of fear. It would take that away. Again, you can see how 
getting in, you know, beginning, we take whatever and for whatever sources, we take these things and we say, if I'm going to be important, then boom, courses evolves as you grow older. You know, as a young child, it might be, I'm just fear, I'm, I'm afraid to death of my coach because he could bench me and my whole identity is in play on the field. Perhaps it's again the fear of losing friends, of being alone, and so we become people pleasers. We adapt every word we say, we, we, do, we do everything we can do in order to please people because we fear people, but underneath it is we fear losing our sense of self, worth, or even a sense of being loved. Perhaps it's the fear of some long-term viability, uh, the fear of death itself. On it goes. Is there fear, though, that should trump or outplay all other fears? In other words, is there fear that transcends everything we've just said? And of course, you know where I'm going. We're getting into the realm of the supernatural. We're getting into the realm of the magic, as we were hearing. You, you have these movies, they pursue it. You think, of course, of C.S. Lewis and, and Aslan and all those, those store the chronicles. You, you think of, of the wizards, this generation especially growing up with Harry Potter. There's something to fear that's indefinable, that's, that's out there. And it becomes that fear that that will drive us in satisfying it. It's, an, it's a kind of unknown fear. We can't name it, perhaps. And that's the entry point, the contact. Every civilization, anthropologists have, have studied civilizations, and one particular Lexus Mead says this, an anthropologist says there's no, no civilization that does not have within its culture an axis mundi. That is, this this concept of where heaven meets earth. As I was on my bike coming to work this morning, I was listening to Sons and Daughters. Some of you know that. And, and there's no better way to get up for a sermon than to ride a bike in the early morning into the church and hearing that song, if you know the song. But, it, but it's, 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 it's given in this kind of mystical tone. And it ends with holy, holy, holy. It's the way in which God meets earth. The name of the song, Heaven Meets Earth. That is something that anthropologists have found to be true in every civilization, in so many words, in so many places. And so today we want to recognize, on the one hand, that fear is real. Fear can sometimes be good, sometimes be bad, but there is a fear of all fears, the fear, the first fear that will, that will reduce all other fears. And of course, we believe it's where heaven meets earth. It's where the supernatural, if, it is, if there is a supernatural, meets our reality. And this brings us to our passage. But before we go to it, let's pray. God, help us. We fear so many things. Help us, Father, to fear you, which is to fear in an absolute and powerful way nothing else if, God, you are God. Help us, Lord, to believe. Help us by your spirit even now to not just go through the routine of a sermon. Impact us, Father, please. Speak into each heart and soul that's in this room in the way that you would do so, in a way that would transcend anything that I could possibly say. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you heard the re reading of our scripture this morning in Proverbs. We are beginning, as some of you have heard, a series in our Sunday school on Proverbs. We're going to divide up the congregation in various demographics so that as they consider these wisdom sayings, they will consider them with a particular aptitude to apply it into their own situation and circumstance of, of, of demographic life, if you will.
It should be a lot of fun. Now, this series is a series of eight. There'll be a sermon to initiate it, which is what you're getting today, and there'll be a sermon to end it in the eighth one. And in between, you'll be meeting in different rooms as demographic groups. You'll be studying with uh, Elder and WLB members uh, the Scripture, uh, the proverb of that week, and it should be an incredibly important conversation. You'll talk about cheerful hearts. You'll talk about and, and the value of having a cheerful heart. You'll talk about uh, the, the whole idea of, um, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here, contentiousness and how to deal with conflict in relationships. You'll deal with false security of wealth and, and the whole issue of wealth. You're going to deal with, in particular, a group with young children, discipline with children. You're going to deal with companionship and friendship and how we are to understand friendship. We're going to deal with what's described as poetic justice, the way in which to go up is to go down, and etc. We're going to deal with the problem of envying sin. And finally, we're going to cap it off with the question, who is wise, uh, as, as it summarizes the Proverbs again. I hope that you'll participate, but, but in doing that, um, this sermon, particularly in this passage, wants to frame the whole course. First, we see in verses 2 through 5 what is a statement of purpose for the book of Proverbs. And second, you hear an exhortation. Again, having stated the purpose, which is to know wisdom and instruction, to understand the words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealings, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple knowledge and discretion to the youth, that is to say that there's a kind of wisdom that transcends age, that the youth can have it as well as the aged. That'll be taught in the Proverbs. There's a kind of instruction that is here noticed. Uh, the wisdom is described in some instances as instruction, as knowledge, as understanding. When the Proverbs uses these words, these are just different nuances around this idea or this genre of wisdom. And then there's the exhortation. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Learning what? Well, wisdom. But where can wisdom be found? And then it goes on, the one who understands obtain guidance to understand a proverb or a saying is the words of the wise and their riddles. And so the proverbs are stated in riddles in sayings, in wise statements. But what is it about the Proverbs that warrants this exhortation? Well, again, look at our passage. Wisdom here is synonymous or consistent with, particularly, if you're listening to it carefully, with the law of God. Some people have tried to make Proverbs into this kind of common sense sort of book. It's it's clearly, as we'll see, wisdom preached on the streets, as one author would say. It's taking God's righteous covenant, the covenant contract that God has made with humanity at creation, as revealed and exposed and clarified through Moses, and it's taking this contract, think about it, the maker of heaven and earth gives us a blueprint. He gives us this sort of, this guide these instructions. And at the core are instructions that want to relate happiness, blessedness, eternal abundant life with those practices and beliefs that are wise according to that contract. Of course, the assumption is clear throughout the Proverbs. It never explicitly divides salvation out of the Proverbs precisely because the Proverbs are thinking about salvation, all of it. What does it mean to be wise? It's to be saved, you'll find out. It's to be brought back to the life that is contracted with us from creation itself. It's a powerful statement. Wisdom, then, is consistent with the law of God. Proverbs 28, 7, the one who keeps the law is the son of wisdom. 
Proverbs 28.9, if one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. He says, they're basically saying, you can pray all you want. He says, but it's worthless if your prayers are inconsistent with or your life is inconsistent with that covenant contract. And that sounds so bookish, I know, but it's more than a contract. The covenant is God, the maker of heaven and earth, revealing himself to us. And how his mind, his beautiful mind, as we sang today, created a world, and how that beautiful world functions out of the mind of God and consistent with his being. So the Proverbs understands that if one turns away the ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 29, where then is there, where there is no prophetic vision? Now, if you understand the prophets, we'll learn this in our, in our school discipleship and how we interpret the Bible, but a prophet was a covenant executor. That's all he was. He read Deuteronomy particularly, and he executed it in his teachings. And so when it talks about prophetic vision, he's speaking of those, those visions, those, those dreams, those warnings of the prophets particularly as they spoke the Word of God, the law of God. Now, here I use law of God synonymous with covenant of God, just so you know. God's covenant contract with humanity. And so therefore, as related to the law of God, the righteous person is the same as a wise person. Did you hear that in the, in the text? Here's another proverb, Proverbs 10, verse 16, the wage of the righteous leads to life, the gain of the wicked to sin. It could just as well have said in the genre of the Proverbs, the wages of the, of the wise person leads to life. In fact, it will say that. Proverbs 11, whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. That is, you'll see this synonymous parallelism with righteousness and wisdom. They're the same. And yet it is a law as it is learned and practiced on the streets. Wisdom is portrayed as preaching in the streets in the Proverbs. Proverbs, for instance, 1.20, just a few verses later. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, and in the market she raises her voice. Proverbs 8, on the heights besides the way at the crossroads she takes her stand. Personified as a woman here, of course. Proverbs 9, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. The maidens of wisdom going into the township, putting God's law, putting God's righteousness into the streets. The places where we live, which is what makes the Proverbs so vital and invigorating. It's taking it right down to where we live and how we would feel it and see it in the most practical of ways. As inconsistent then with the promises to those who keep the law of God, what do you think the good news of wisdom is? That's right, in so many words, abundant life such as to heed the admonition of wisdom is a path of abundant life. Again, I'm going to do this just so you feel it. There's so much Proverbs I could be quoting here. But Proverbs 10:17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life. Proverbs 2:19, none who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. To be unwise is to therefore lose abundant life. For those who have been around the church and Christian tent, you begin to hear a theme here. It sounds like, wow, wisdom sounds like the gospel. It is. Proverbs 5, she does not ponder the path of life, her waves wander and she does not know it, speaking of those who are not wise. Proverbs 10, 16, the wage of the righteous leads to life, but the gain of the wicked is to sin. Did you hear that? Sin and direct parallelism with uh, antithetical parallelism with wisdom. On it goes. Another way to say it is in the Psalms, and you'll see it in fact 25 times, the word blessed is used to describe this abundant life. Blessed are those, that is, the abundant life is given to those 
who are wise. Proverbs 3.13, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. And so as we're beginning to see, we are now moving into this world of God, the world of God's self-revelation through his covenant contract with humanity. A covenant contract that would stipulate in Genesis who God is and what he has accomplished. They would then move forward in the great moments of redemptive history where God is revealed through that redemptive history, where it comes to this great and wonderful Old Testament climax in the, in the history of the Exodus, where they are being saved from bondage and sin. Every story that leads to that bondage of sin is the story of rejecting the wisdom of God. And so herein, it's re it's reinstituted, it's rediscovered, this law of God. You know, I've talked about the S cycle that will continue after Moses. In the book of Judges particularly, the people would sin. The people would then, in their sin, in acting unwise, in acting against or transgressing the law of God, they would find themselves in servitude. And in servitude, they would live in the bondage of their sins where God had delivered them over to the idols that they had replaced God with, and their idols proved to be cruel and, and horrible taskmakers. And so they'd cry out to God in supplication, sin, servitude, supplication. And then God, ever and always so merciful, would hear their prayers when they'd humble themselves and restore themselves to God's covenant by putting themselves in God's mercy. That is the story of wisdom. You could say the whole Bible is the Bible of wisdom, even as these Proverbs bring it down to the streets. Here again, the Proverbs speak of all this. Proverbs 10, 17, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, etc. I've already read that, haven't I? This is the one I wanted to read. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Now, did you hear what just happened? All this talk about abundant life, blessedness. You could also think of, gosh, not just the gospel, but, but the tree of life itself. It began this whole story I just told you about. A story that will end in Revelations, where it will be declared that it is those who, are the, who fear God who are given the tree of life again. This tree of life, you see, promising, that is promising the, the abundant, eternal, utopian dream. You know what we really fear, brothers and sisters? The fear of all fears that transcends all other fears, at least in terms of the way in which we would feel it, is this incredible, insatiable desire for utopia. For this life that is just so abundant. Now, God put that dream in our hearts. It's his fault. He made us with this dream. When he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil alongside of the tree of life and the promise of utopia, it's this dream we're so afraid of missing in all its multifaceted complexity of things, our worth, our significance, our safety, our, our physical, our emotional, our spiritual, our relational health and well-being, all of this is what's underneath so many of our fears. And so inconsistent with the promises to those who keep the law of God, the good news of wisdom is in so many words this great and abundant life. Now, this is so significant. We discern then how for the Proverbs, wisdom's power is synonymous with the power of the tree of life, which was nothing short of a vision for that utopian society. To forget that eternal life, now listen to this, to forget that eternal life is the end game of the Proverbs is to fall into many temptations and errors in how we then interpret it. You will read the Proverbs, and it will relate things that are very on-the-street level with 
gaining you what it amounts to, so many words, abundant life. And then you could be tempted to exasperation once you discover that, well, it's been how many years since Proverbs? Where is it? And herein lies yet another purpose of the Proverbs. We discover how the Proverbs, consistent with the law of God, not only directs us to an abundant life, in consistent, consistent with this great covenant contract that God made with humanity, but how it is that the Proverbs exposes to us our impotency, our impotency in wisdom. There is not a good lesson on Proverbs that will never forget to end who then is wise. And the answer will always be if you've read the Proverbs fully in, in believing it, every time your answer is going to be looking around, looking at himself, and going, I'm not wise. That's the point, part of its point. Then who is wise? Who will be wise unto this salvation event and the tree of life? Who will take our place to be wise? that we might experience the tree of life promised in the Proverbs. And that's why I want to make sure you hear me say that there's not a proverb that you can study that will not direct you to Christ. This stuff is incredible. Your word of God is special. I hope you know that. This is the mouth of God speaking on the street level of our existence, bringing us to Jesus Christ through the story of history and the wisdom of God's law. Herein then we are brought to the first proverb of all proverbs, I'll call it. It is in this sense that Solomon teaches now who is to be wise? And the answer you got, part two, the exhortation was what? Fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Notice the word knowledge there. It's paralleled again in this text with, with wisdom and discipline. It's also restated in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, and knowledge goes before honor. The idea that, that fear is the beginning of wisdom brings us back to our original conversation, doesn't it? And here, fear is maybe, it is, in the scripture, the greatest, most important attribute of those who want abundant life. This is the first teaching of wisdom that will therefore be related to every other teaching of wisdom, is the point of this word, beginning. That is the first in importance, and well as first in sequence. It starts with the fear of the Lord, this whole journey to salvation. It starts with the fear of the Lord. Indeed, the fear of the Lord functions as this first proverb of all other proverbs concerning wisdom. This is the proverb that is most fundamental to wisdom, the most important to wisdom, the most critical in terms of how we will participate in this great and beautiful and transcendent story of wisdom perfected in blessedness. It's the first principle that's behind every other principle of Scripture in terms of a correct and right way to live life. If you want to be wise, it begins with fear God. You're thinking, well, that's, that's problems. Well, Job said it. Job 26, 28, and he said to humankind, truly the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Psalms 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise will endure forever. This great wise teaching of David evidently was taught his son as well. So weighty is the fear of the Lord that Solomon, his son, concludes his, his work on Ecclesiastes, and he sums it up this way, chapter 12, verse 13. 
For the end of the matter is this. If you read Ecclesiastes, and we're going to hear it this, uh, preached some this year as well, it's like, what is life anyway? <laughs> kind of a book. And here's the answer. What is life anyway? Well, the end of the matter, after all has been said and heard, fear God. Fear God. Keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of everyone. Now, about this time, you're trying to reconcile fear with love. What, what really is fear anyway, right? What is the fear of God? What's the real meaning? Well, the word fear is derived from, uses three different Hebrew words. Words such as yirah, yer, and also the word pasha. You know what those words mean? In any lexicon that you could study, the first, fear, duh. <laughs> the second, terror. The third, dread. I wasn't expecting that, were you? Gospel-centered Christian, I mean, it's true. Many Christian teachers will downplay the fear of God and use replacement words such as respect and reverence or honor. But the Hebrew language is pretty clear. There are other words for those words in Hebrew. Those are not the words that are used here for fear. I just got to be honest with you. And I know your brains, I mean, this is a church that talks and practices and preaches gospel-centered life, a grace-centered life, that God is grace. Hold on. We're not going to lose that. But lest you think this is a distinctively old covenant or Jewish way of thinking, Romans 3, Paul is talking about the problem in the world. And he sums it up this way in chapter 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The writer of Hebrews is a sum total of what, means, what it means to be a devout Christian, says it this way in chapter 12. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And Paul, again, in 2 Corinthians 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting ourselves in the fear of God. It's spoken of in Philippians. It's spoken of in Jude. Peter talks about it. So now we need to go one level deeper, number three. So what does it look like? What does it mean to fear God, really? Well, here we have a parallelism. Now, we'll talk about that in Sunday school. I hope you all come back to the Sunday school class. I'm going to give you sort of an interpretive uh, uh, lens through how to understand and read the Proverbs and some of that application. But, but, but here, the Proverbs will frequently utilize what's described as a literary parallelism. That is to say a statement and to say it again, which is a synonymous parallelism, or to say a statement and say it antithetically, which is, it is this, it's not this. And then it's also to say a statement and say it synthetically, which means to say that this means this in terms of its, how it works out. But those parallelisms are really crucial in Proverbs. You'll notice them in many of the ones you're going to study. And we have a perfect example of this. So if you're asking, well, what does it mean to fear God? Well, the, the answer is, well, I'll tell you what it's not. Wisdom and instruction fools despise. Now, I love this. <laughs> this is one of the most important observations that I could teach you about the Proverbs today. When we think of sin, if you think of it in a, in a legal sense, like as in a contractual, legal, forensic sense, sin is typically identified with what? What would you say? Guilt, right? So to sin is to be found guilty. So much of our Western, particularly our Western way of thinking about theology focuses in a more forensic, legalistic way. Now there's another way, and it typically is more common in the East. And that's what here wisdom will talk about. No, here, to be unwise is to lose face, to be stupid be foolish. 
you understand the significance of that? If according to the law, sin results in being found guilty, according to wisdom, sin is found to be stupid. And so in an ironic way, it doesn't mean this as a you are stupid kind of way. It's more a it is stupid. And I think this is, to me, quite refreshing. It's like, you know, some people think that to, when they think of the law of God, right, the, the teachings of God, the commandments, etc., they, they typically, we typically think of it as somehow taking life away, as somehow going to hinder our flourishing. When I hear it said, and I suspect many, you know, one day I'm going to turn to Christ, but man, I got to, I got to go through that season of college where I can sow my oats. I mean, that's, that's part of my right, you know, to have fun before I have to get down to working. And it's sadly false. You see, for wisdom is to be happy. To be wise is to be blessed. To not be wise, well, that's just stupid. Because <laughs> it's as if we are not just transesting a law, we're defying the way reality is. Real reality is a reality framed by God. That there is a God. The person who lives life as if there is no God, according to the, the whole book of the Bible, is a person who's a fool. Because God is the ultimate reality that defines and informs, creates and saves and drives all other realities. Now do you see why the fear of God is the first proverb of all proverbs? That is, to lack wisdom is to lack abundant life and therefore to be foolish. Proverbs 10.8, the wise of heart will heed commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. The person who dies for lack of sense, Proverbs 10.21, the lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. Isn't that, isn't that a different way of thinking about sin? The person who troubles his or her household is talked about as a fool. It says, those who've, who've troubled their households will inherit wind. Nothing. <laughs> but the fool will be servant to the wise. And so, what does it mean to fear? Well, it's going to start with humility. A pride precedeth the fall instruction. Humility. That is, the humility recognized that that there is nothing in this world that controls my destiny like God does. The humility to know that I cannot rely on my own power and my own strength, that is to fear myself, to fear humanity or humanism we call it, but to fear God, divinity. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. You see how Wisdom's contrasted with pride. The reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is great wealth and honor and life, the Proverbs teaches in chapter 22. The fear of the Lord in Proverbs is going to result in a hatred for evil. You know, after Paul says what he does about the sum total problem of, of humanity is that we don't fear God. He then goes on to describe how it is in chapter 1, how as a result we don't only avoid, or not avoid sin, but we love it. He later in Timothy says we're lovers of pleasure, lovers of self, lovers of money. Think about that. One generation in this room may be more tempted with the love of money. Other members of this generation in this room may be lovers of pleasure, but they're both mentioned. Rather than lover of God. To be, to fear the Lord is, is to be humble, to put ourselves in God's mercy. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil and not to romanticize it. How would it impact you to think about the fear of the Lord and what we watch and what we see and what we read and what we sing? Isn't that interesting? It evidences itself in a true knowledge it is not a crippling phobia, but a source of deep confidence in something rewarded by God. 
all through the Proverbs, it's described that way, the fear of the Lord. There's a strong confidence, we're told, in Proverbs 14, 26. And his children will have a place of refuge. Did you hear that? Don't think of fear of the Lord as therefore taking yourself out of refuge, as in you're always living with fear. No, to fear the Lord is to be under his refuge, wherein nothing, nothing can hurt you, ultimately. That's why it leads, you see, to this assurance. Proverbs 22, the reward for humility and the fear of the Lord is wealth and honor and life. I've read that. The fear of the Lord is more desired than all worldly advantages, therefore, according to Proverbs 15. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. To fear God is to have life itself. So what is it to fear God? Well, I have a couple of quotes here. They're decent. I'll read the decent quotes, and then I'll give you what I think is a better quote. Charles Bridges says it this way. It's that affectionate reverence. Now, you can already tell. I'm going to say, eh, it's not quite strong enough. But it's that affectionate reverence by which the child of God rends himself humbly and carefully to do his father's law. His wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please him because of the danger of coming short from his one weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear that he might not sin against him. That is to say, he says, the opposite of the fear of the Lord is to be wise in one's sight, to reject the instruction and discipline of the Lord, no matter how and where it comes from. David Hubbard Again, although it includes worship, it radiates out from our adoration and devotion to our everyday conduct that sees each moment as a Lord's time. Each relationship is a Lord's opportunity. Each duty is the Lord's command, and each blessing is a Lord's gift. Now, I think there's some really good information in those definitions, but I think they are lacking. Whereas these definitions are true, they are too weak to accurately portray the Proverbs. Thus, I gave you a quote. Maybe you read it earlier. This is a quote by William Eisenhower, and he says it this way. Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. Did you hear that? Let's stop there. The fear of God is not, oh, the world is huge and biggable and horrible. So God, could you come alongside me and help me fend off the world? You see, that's bringing God into the world. He says this, how different this is from that biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. But in contrast, he says, as I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. He rescues me from my delusions so he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up again. He sits in judgment of my sin but forgives me nevertheless. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is the completion of wisdom. I think this is so important. The fear of God is to live, therefore, in the awareness that there is only one true and living God. It's not the government. It's not money. It's not friendship. It's not, what have I missed? Wealth. It's not even health, temporally. The fear of the Lord is to live in the awareness that there is only one God, and God alone is ultimately the first cause of everything that happens to me and everything that will. Think about this. At the core of the fear of God, and maybe this is where I want us to go today, do you really believe that? Do you really believe in God? There's only one God. If you do, what would you believe about him? The God revealed 
in Scripture, in Jesus Christ, we discover is immutable. He never changes. Because he's perfect. Perfection can't change. Have you ever thought about that? He's immense everywhere. He's eternal, not temporal. He's incomprehensible, which is to say he's always mystery. He's almighty, not some mighty. He's most wise. There is nothing wiser. Why? Why would we not fear God? With this kind of knowledge, this kind of wisdom, this kind of power, it goes on. He's free. He's most free. Our freedom is relative to him. He is absolutely free. He can do and say anything he wants because he's the beginning and the end of all that is. He's the unmoved mover in the words of Aristotle. Do you believe in that God? Really? God that works all things according to the counsel of his unchanging and always righteous, loving, good will? Now see, these are things that we need to study to see if we really believe this and don't just give lip service to it. Do I believe it really? And you know, I believe that you're gonna be wrestling with that question for the rest of your life. If you've never really asked that question, if today is a turning point in your life, and I pray it could be, this will be the question that you're gonna to start to ask every single situation that happens in your life. Do I really believe in God? I don't know the existential moment that will bring that question to your mind, but it will come to your mind. Maybe it is the, the fear of losing someone. Maybe it is the disappointment of not making it to this or to that successful thing that I hope to make. Maybe it will be something Maybe it's something happening to our children and we can't fathom the thought of it. Maybe it's even to lose our child. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in himself and he alone is to himself all sufficient? The second song that I heard on my motorcycle coming in was also a song from the Sons and Daughters and it was a song about St. Augustine and his famous phase, my heart is always restless until I find my rest in thee, put in beautiful prose. Do you believe that to be right with God, to, to know God and to be right with that God, do you believe that that and that alone would satisfy your heart and its restlessness? Is it conceivable that what you just know for a certain is how you're going to be happy could possibly be taken away and you could still be happy because you have God? I know I've wrestled with that. Some people know I'm half blind. I've wrestled with that. I've wrestled with the, the fear of losing a son. I've wrestled with it, and now you have too. We're all wrestling with this. Everyone in this room. I know what it means to fear being let off, rejected in my job, I know you do too. The fear of not having enough money to live on for the rest of my life, I know you have that too. The fear of not taking care of those that you feel you're supposed to take care of, your family or someone you love. Is it possible that God is bigger than what we have posited as the essential for how my loved ones or me can be happy? That's what this question is asking us. Do you fear God? To have God and to be right with this God is to be and then live in the awareness of God's presence in the reality that only God is our happiness and wealth. Think about that. Think about how it changed even your relationships together. I mean, if we really knew that all of our secret thoughts, words, actions would be displayed publicly so that everyone could watch them and evaluate them, it would make a profound difference in the way we talk, wouldn't it? I mean, just imagine that everything that I think and you think, when you walk up to me and I walk up to you and, 
and you're thinking, boy, he sure has an ugly looking something on his cheek, or oh, you know, those are the cute things. It could get a lot worse. Imagine that all of that was transparent to each other in this room. Can you get your head around that? Now, we're a bunch of fickle, powerless people. I mean, not one of you controls the destiny of my life. And yet, why, why, why do I fear you so much? And you fear me and each other. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that he is present? As Psalms 139 describes, that he knows your thoughts from afar. What would it mean to change the way you make decisions? Oh, no one would think this is a stupid decision. All my friends would agree with it. Therefore, I won't look foolish. Well, who cares? Oh, you know, Blank and Billy Bob, you know, they tell me to do this, and I, you know, who cares? Or, I know what this person would want me to say. I'm going to say it because they're going to like me. Really? It's incredible how important this fear of the Lord is, even in our own relationships together. We'll talk about that companionship. How could we possibly be cheerful? The cheerful heart, we're going to read about that in the Proverbs. And what you're going to discover is there is no way to be cheerful except that we fear God. Because you see, to fear God is to fear, in an absolute sense, nothing else. I mean, the worst case scenario is that my business would fail, let's say. But God won't fail. He can take care of you and your family. It goes on and on. It's amazing how the things that makes us so anxious, if we were to fear the Lord, and then we would understand that we are right with that God, with that God and that the promises of the wisdom is made affordable now to you to be wise, is to be blessed, then I'm blessed. It's already settled. I'm blessed. Again, I haven't gotten you there yet, in Christ the wisdom of God unto salvation for me. And so all of these promises, I want you to remember this, all of these promises in Proverbs that you're going to read about, related to these, be, this being right with God according to his law, and this street language way of saying it, for those who fear the Lord, they will therefore trust the Lord to save us and not ourselves. And that brings us to the cross, for the fear of the Lord ultimately is the fear that puts ourselves in the mercy of God, where you will confess, Lord, I am not wise. And you will confess it every week you study the Proverbs. You will also confess, Jesus is my wisdom. He has satisfied the law of God. He is my refuge and strength. We come to this table to remember that. He alone is sufficient. The wisdom of God into salvation. Amen.